Hey guys, DJ here. This is a disclaimer. Applied Materials is a 100% non-profit, fan-made project set within the Orpheus Protocol game system. The Orpheus Protocol is an actual play podcast and tabletop role-playing game system created by Rob Stith and published by Varkalak Press. If you'd like to know more, please check out the main podcast at www.orpheusprotocol.com and patreon.com slash orpheusprotocol if you'd like to show more support for the main podcast. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy the following episode. Welcome to Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. My name is DJ and I will be your host for tonight. On the cast list for our journey into the unknown, Pinky as Robbie, Ross as James Castillo, Seth as Oro Eldridge. Tonight's episode, The Man in Bandages. The Man in Bandages contains, well, me, my cheerful countenance, the stories I bring out of people, and their reactions. Consider this your warning. Previously on Applied Materials, Kingpin and the team exit the Valley of Plenty to search for their mysterious caller, who turns out to be a man wrapped in bandages perched on a cliffside overlooking a waterfall. He cuts them a deal, power, and a way home. In exchange, for nothing. Without much choice, Oro, Robbie, and James take his deal and fall into unconsciousness. Robbie, as you fall into the dark depths of sleep, you can feel as if your unconscious mind is slowly slipping away from your body. But when you wake up, you blink a bit of sleep out of your eyes. It's pretty cold. You realize there is wind whistling through some trees outside of this place. And as you sort of sit up and rub sleep from your eyes, you realize that this looks like some sort of workshop or some sort of like technical lab in a place that at first confuses you because this place reminds you of your school, your old school. And then you look down at yourself and you see that you're wearing your school uniform. And then it hits you. Yeah, you're in school. You're working on a specific project late at night. You look outside and you can see that the moon is high in the sky. The lights are on and all of the street lights outside. There is a light breeze. Occasionally, a few leaves from these trees drift down and smack against the window. You look down at your hands and you can see that in one, you are holding a soldering iron. And in the other, you're holding one of those magnifying glasses, the big one, the big round ones that sit on an armature. You can sort of hold, uh, haul around and look at, look through. And you are sitting in front of a workbench. Um, it, it, is, is this the same workbench where I started working on my... On, on Sally 1.0? It certainly reminds you of it. There is a bunch of tools strewn around on top of this workbench. And in the center of it, un- just and in the center of it, just underneath this magnifying glass, you can see that there appears to be some sort of mechanical construction grasped in some custom-made armatures that you've created to hold this thing as you apply little bits of wire 
fix circuitry and assemble it using materials that you see are on your workbench. It reminds you of when you first made Sally 1.0. I'm going to take a closer look. This particular component looks like it is bits and pieces of circuitry, wires, piping assembled in a manner that makes it look like a heart, or at least part of one. And you can see that strewn out on the table in front of you are some more bits and pieces that you figure belong to this same quote-unquote jigsaw puzzle. It appears that I'm taking apart or putting together. Looked like you were putting it together, and you had maybe fallen asleep during it. That's At least that's what it feels like. Unusual, but I mean, given the time... Hang on a minute, I was just somewhere else. It felt like a dream when you came to, and it's very hazy, flashes, bits and pieces of memory, seeing other strange, taller, older men. You were under fire, and for a brief moment there was fire, a lot of it. That should stop drinking so much coffee. On a corner of your workbench, you see a stack of biology books and anatomy books, as well as printed reference documents of a red squirrel. You've got like the front view, the side view, musculature, skeleton, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, I'll flick one of the pages. Almost as if by memory, as you flip through one of these textbooks, you can find a few dog-eared pages where you had highlighted some notes on what goes where, what does what, in terms of a squirrel's biological structure. And the more that you read of your own notes, the more compelled you feel to finish what you started. Yeah, I am getting stuck into this. I, I'm really excited now. I'm picking pieces up and like, oh, God, yeah, oh, this, def- this has to go. Yes, 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 yes. Right, okay, that's good. Okay, right. Steady hand, steady hand. Okay, right, and that goes. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Right, and that's got to go here. All right, okay, test this. Connection works. Yes. Okay. And as you keep working, you don't know how long you spend at your workbench. You solder wires together, twist pieces of metal around each other, attach piping together. You finish the heart. You build a leg and then another, a big old tail, small little body. And you don't know how many hours fly by like this in this creative trance. Until finally, you have, sitting in your hands, a mechanical reconstruction of your average British red squirrel. A thing of beauty. It is perfect. And the only thing it needs is a heart. And you can see that on its chest, it has a little trap door with a cute little swinging latch. And in your right hand, you have the heart. I'm nervous now. Will it work? Don't know. Gotta try, though. You open up the little cage door, and you stick the tiny little squirrel heart into its chest. It's so small, and it's so delicate. You set the inanimate squirrel down on the workbench. You close the cage door, and then you wait. Have I done it right? The moments tick by. You are unsure of how long you sit there, waiting. It feels... Like it takes forever, but it's only a few moments. And then you see your work bear fruit. The heart starts to glow. A (gasps) faint but gentle 
light blue, and you can start to hear pieces of the metal animating on your bench. And then you see life. Its leg twitches ever so slightly, and then its tail. And it almost comes to life like it has just woken from a deep, deep sleep. This machine squirrel stretches and scratches at an itch with its little forepaws. Its tail flicks around uneasily as it regards its surroundings. It works! Oh my god! It sniffs the air, sort of testing its surroundings, and then you see its little glowing blue eyes latch on to you. It meets your gaze and sits there for a good long while, just staring into your eyes, like it's almost imprinting onto you. What do you do? So, uh, I'm not normally the most emotive or (laughs) openly emotional person, but in this moment, I am full of love and I, I I think I am imprinting on my creation as well I cannot believe it worked this beautiful adorable mechanical squirrel that is just gazing at me with its piercing lovely perfect eyes it's just it is just perfection and not just because I made it it well that's it. I love it. And in this moment, in this one moment, I don't care who sees me like this. I'm just beaming with joy. I think then that as you reach a handout to the little squirrel, it scampers forward on the bench and it grabs the tip of your index finger in its little hands and just sniffs. And then it leaps up onto your hand and arm, scampers up onto your shoulder and then just sits there. And it lays its little head against your cheek. And you can feel it, its heart beating inside its body. And there's this sense of completion that your life's work has been accomplished. You have created life where there shouldn't be. And that is in itself a miracle. Oh, hello. You are magnificent. We should get you a name and maybe some skin. The squirrel looks down at itself and then looks up at you and it bonks its head against your cheek again. Is that a yes? Looks like it. Feels like it. It's almost as if the two of you have this intrinsic connection. Whatever the squirrel does, whatever it pantomimes, you can understand it almost like it's speaking to you. Mm, I think I understood that. You know what? I think we need to work out a quick and easy communication. I'll think on that. I'll also figure out some skins for you. I'll work on that too. The squirrel seems to nod, and then it curls up against the side of your neck. Cozy. Comfortable. Oh, well that feels very comfortable. There's a knock on the door. That kind of chucks me out of my... Yes? Hello? Hey, uh, it's a bit late. Or, in this case, early. Is anyone in there thought I saw a light? No, there's nobody here. Go away. You're responding. There's someone in there. Why is the door locked? Come on. Open up, pal. You can't be on school grounds this late or early. Every time it is. Alright, squirrel, just stay still, alright? Um, I'll go over and open up the door. As you open up the door, you see the same man you saw 
minutes, hours, days, weeks ago. It feels so strange seeing his black tie, the bandaged form of his head and face. But you're here in school when you were younger and you saw this person in the future. Wait, where are you again? Really confused again. The man has his hands in his pockets now as he says, I gotta admit that, uh, that whole I'm not in here thing sort of threw me off. Isn't it good to relive this part of history, Robbie? Who are you? Don't you remember? We met in that faraway place. I offered you power and a gift. You said yes, and now we're here. Don't you recognize this place? Your old school? Your little friend on your shoulder? Well, the first version of her, anyway. I take a quick glance down the hallway, see if anyone else is around. Doesn't look like it. Very empty. And then I usher the person in and shut the door again. The man steps in, you shut the door. And lock it. Uh, okay, um... Tell me their name. Her name is Sally. And as far as I recall, the two of you have been inseparable ever since you made her. And what color is she? Blue, with wings. The prettiest wings you've ever seen in a squirrel. Fuck, I thought it was a dream. Well, technically you are dreaming right now. In fact, this, this is all a memory. And he gestures to the lab, the sun that is starting to creep in through the windows of the workshop and he says you know when you were younger the, i'm sure the feeling must have been indescribable but i don't think you realized just how much of a miracle you pulled when you created life from nothing only hours ago she was just a pile of scrap metal and wires on a workbench and now She's beautiful. It's just mechanics. It's life, Robbie. Mechanical or not, that is a living, breathing thing, an animal, a being that loves you. She is magnificent, isn't she? She is. I've seen a lot of things in my life, and it's what you people do, the things that you can create, that really, truly is magnificent. Human ingenuity and creativity it should know no bounds, but look at what the world's become. Instead of using your gifts and your talents to bring life, humankind is slowly digging a grave deeper and deeper for itself. And it's up to the small few to prevent that from happening. People like you, remember what I said when I told you I'd give you a gift? Not really. Well, I told you that this gift will bring you power. And with great power comes great responsibility. He smiles, and he throws you a little finger gun. Honestly, I think the Toby Maguire version was the best. <laughs> Honestly, Robbie doesn't normally laugh, but they do laugh. <laughs> if you leave that in, they laugh. Getting back to the point, though, the folks that employ me... You know, they see this, they see all of this that you've created, and they see potential. Not potential that can be exploited, no. Talent that can be harnessed into something 
that can very well save the world. You see, you're gonna need a lot in these coming times. It's going to be very hard. It's only gonna get harder from there. The gift that I bring you today is gonna give you strength. At least, strength enough to face what's going to happen soon. Very soon. And I believe that this gift is, or should be, a little bit, well, appropriate, ironic. Who's to say? Well, that's not at all ominous. He stuffs a hand into the front pocket of his suit jacket and pulls out what appears to be a little gold-plated spherical object that resolves itself into the form of an acorn as he walks closer to you. And he says, Out of all this, the stakes can never be higher. It's more than just progress and the dreams of your youth. There's a great darkness on your path. The path that you share with countless others. Challenges you need to overcome in a world that needs saving. I'm here to ensure that you're started on the right path. After all, what's progress without that first step to greatness? But remember, progress won't come without stepping on a few toes. I hope you're prepared for that eventuality. Because when the time comes, you're going to have to make a choice. And what you choose will determine if you build your new world top a pedestal of scientific achievement or on top of a mountain of bones. Well, you know me, science. Ever onward, the march of progress. And he hands you the acorn. As you feel the acorn drop into your palm, you gain this sense of clarity. And it almost feels like your subconscious is blown out of your own body and just soars into the sky. You can see out of your mind's eye yourself, the man, your school, your neighborhood, and then further and further away, the British Isles, Europe, the Earth, your solar system, space. And as it continues to zoom out and zoom out and zoom out, this image of galaxies and stars and universes swirling into infinity resolves into an image of a shadow cast by a leaf from a tree, a large tree, so large, so unfathomably vast. Its roots stretch downwards into infinity. Its branches reach up into the heavens. And your tiny little galaxy sits just underneath one of its leaves, swirling, falling into infinity in the shadow of its branches. And then you rush all the way back into your body on fast forward, and you're standing right there in the empty school lab. Wow. The man is no longer standing there. He's gone. But it feels like at this moment you've gained a sense of scale of weight. You know that this acorn represents sheer, boundless, and infinite potential. And it's up to you to figure out a place you want to plant it, to let this seed grow into a tree as magnificent as the one you saw.
you fall into a deep, deep sleep. It feels like you're tumbling down backwards into an infinite abyss. And when you next open your eyes, you are standing in front of a workbench. This workbench is lightly colored, slightly off-white. A lot of chemistry stuff here. Test tubes, pipettes, little Bunsen burner, beakers of various shapes and sizes, different colored chemicals and plastic bottles and glass jars. And the sun is ever so slightly blinding you as it streams in through one of the windows in this lab space. And you are here, standing in front of this bench, as you sort of come to, and you recognize this place when you slowly turn around and look around. This is your lab. What am I sitting on? Like in the, my lab chair, or am I on the ground? Or Plain old lab chair. I've fallen asleep many a times in... Probably, you know, reaches his head back to his neck, rubs his shoulders a little bit, you know, feels that, you know, to if that's real. Is he real in this situation after, imagine it feels a little foggy, and then kind of looks around, starts to, I don't know, is the lab, like, does it smell the way it does? I bring up my, mo you know, does it, does it have all the parts that need to be there? Like, is my favorite, you know, little, you know beanie toy you know on the on the counter where it should be everything is as it should be everything feels very familiar all of the pieces sort of fit into place like a jigsaw puzzle everything is as it should be even the little plush toy on the central lab counter yeah, it's a little like german shepherd dog that has this little like tag on it that says riley it's probably like a dog i had when i was like, a kid you know I, you know like the girlfriend that I had at the time like gave it to me and I've just held on to it for years that I don't really know why. And then do I remember what I was doing here? Or am I just like waking up just in a fog? Like why I was in the lab, like what I was working on? The fog is slowly clearing. And as you finish your inspection of the lab space, you come back to your workbench and you see right in the center of it, a small shot glass with a bright blue liquid inside it. And you remember this moment in history, in time, as the moment you tried for the very first time to get rid of the curse that you are under. Do I remember if this attempt was at all successful? Well, there's only one way to find out. He grabs it, sniffs it, brings it up to eye level after he sniffs it, looks at the blue li liquid really close, trying to remember actually like synthesizing, actually creating it, and thinks he does, and Oro drinks it. You remember the process that it took for you to get here. You needed a whole bunch of different ingredients and alchemical components, along with regular chemicals and a sample of something that you thought was impossible. As you lift the glass and down it like a shot, you hazily remember following that thing through the forest to pick up just a small tuft of its fur. And that is what sits at the bottom of a tall, triangular glass beaker, the end product of a distillation process. You down this liquid. It tastes bitter, acrid, kind of woody, like a whiskey that is too intense, too strong. And you feel a familiar tingle, followed by intense, searing pain. Through this river of agony, you remember that this is what happened. You feel as if your entire body is 
rebelling against something, a change, if you will. And your grunts and the involuntary groaning in agony that you make slowly turns to growls. And you can see through a haze of tears that fur has begun to sprout up and down your arm. You remember this. You remember it failing. No, no, no. Slams the ground, punches it a couple times, hands go to the back of his head. He's like gripping, almost like wanting to rip off his own skin. Like, stands up, probably stumbles, shoves some stuff off one of the tables. Glass and stuff probably falls. Another failure. Probably has a notebook on the desk. Goes to look if he's seen, made any notes about the most recent thing yet. His most recent dosage. You stumble to your feet and brace yourself on the lab bench. You find your journal, and it is open to the most recent entry. And you can see that this entry is probably the closest you've ever been to a pure sample, seeing as how this tuft of fur was taken from a, well, not sterile place. You weren't able to completely clean it and make sure that it was stable enough that you could use it in this particular fashion. And so, again, you scribble into your journal that this attempt has ended in failure. It hurts. He tries to write of it in the most objective tone possible. It just makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever read Jekyll and Hyde, but like, there's a chapter in Jekyll and Hyde when we get to hear from Jekyll's friend's point of view when he sees Hyde for the first time. And he's trying to like put himself out of his shoes to really describe the contortion of his muscles, the swat of hair that grows on his arm. The thickness of it is different than before. Uh, there are places that it like is like balding or whatnot. You know, like, he 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 tries to be meticulous and he like literally is like looking over his own body. I imagine he has some sort of like giant mirror somewhere nearby so he can like look behind him and at his back and tail area and like he will take like a like 45 minutes plus easy just like trying to understand is there anything that actually was successful and can he build upon that success as you look yourself over you can see that you are still in your partial transformation state half man quarter wolf and the more you look yourself over the more you realize that although some of the changes worked they weren't permanent you can see that there are messy patches of skin mixed with fur dotting your arms and some of your chest. And the more time you spend, the more you realize that the fur is slowly growing back. It's not as fast as it normally is, but it is still growing back at a rate that you can notice over time. By the end of this short period, you are covered in a light fuzz in places. It's not too long like you know how long your fur as a werewolf is but it's still fuzz it hasn't worked but you're getting close at least so you think so a um, slow change he, he, he will add the notes and he will i think that somewhat positivity will encourage him to start to figure out how does he do this again like do does he need more hair does he need to go find you know a ancient like frankincense herb somewhere or what is the most precious thing that he needs to make sure he can have the same success and make it even stronger like was there what was different about this mixture that he put in it like what was that 
you've got notes. You've got a book full of notes. Ever since you started doing this, you've compiled information about different ancient herbs and plants, different kinds of roots, tree bark, different kinds of fruit and their essence, berries, flowers, and then getting into the slightly more gruesome mentions of occult history, tufts of fur or hair, samples of claws or skin, even blood at times. But there was one component you knew that you were always missing, because that component comes from someone very close and very dear to you. And it is also the person that puts you into this situation in the first place. Probably pulls out his cell phone. <laughs> and he is like in the process of like absentmindedly, almost like manic, like absentmindedly manic, like because he knows he has the answer. He knows he like almost calls, but he doesn't kind of puts the phone away. He knows that, that once that door is open, he can't close it again. Yes, you know that the moment you try and contact her again, there will be no escaping the pack, and you will have to be a part of that for the rest of your life. It's the whole reason why you're out here, why you're isolated, why you've taken up the mantle that you currently wear, is so that you don't end up like her. And as you're going through this rumination, you hear a knock on your front door. It's loud and fairly insistent. He will go, like, tiptoe quietly to, like, he doesn't want to draw too much attention because he knows he does not at all look human really right now if like a normal person saw him so kind of tiptoe to like the peephole or like the window or whatever that's nearby and kind of look through the drapes see if there's who it is like is it is it someone that can actually he can actually trust with this bestial nature taking over as you approach the door you put your eye to the peephole and you look through and you can see that there is a man standing on your porch. He's got a big old package in his hand and a little clipboard on top of the package. He looks like he's just wearing regular, like, UPS delivery uniform. There's even a truck outside. And you can see the man extend his hand, knock on the door again, and you can hear him call, Uh, excuse me, package for... And you see his head dip briefly to look at the clipboard. Oro Eldridge? Eldridge? Yeah. Oro Eldridge, uh, got a package for you here. Need you to sign. Hmm. Um, if he goes back to the mirror, how much of a wolf does he look like? <laughs> if he remembers from the mirror. You rush back to the mirror and you check yourself out again. You still look pretty wolfy. Probably won't be able to go outside and face this guy without him panicking and just screaming and running away. I yell back, give me a minute gruff voice um i go to my notebook to back blank piece of paper and i write my name <laughs> my name and then my signature and uh, i slide it under the door um sorry i'm contagious right now i i don't know what i have i it's probably best not to open the door um here uh my signature my name um and uh if you need i can slide my ID underneath as well. You open the door a crack and you sort of poke like your two fingers out with a piece of paper with your name and signature clasped between it. You can see through the people the delivery guy is very confused. He kind of lifts the brim of his baseball cap, looks at your hand, raises an eyebrow, takes the piece of paper, looks at it, and he kind of shrugs, uses his pen to replicate your signature to the best of his ability, and sticks the scrap of paper on his clipboard. 
places the package down in front of your door. And then he says, um, okay, thanks, Mr. Eldridge. Um, have a nice day and get well soon. No, thank you. He will wait a good 30 seconds before he, like, fully opens the door to make sure the guy's away. You have your face pressed against the door, just watching him through the peephole. The delivery guy walks off your porch, gets into the truck, drives off in, like, five minutes. And all is quiet again. Okay. What's the name on the box? Who's it from? The box is unlabeled, but you can see that it has your address down to a T written on the cardboard of the box. When you open your door, you pick it up. And when you do, you see the tips of a pair of black dress shoes just in front of you in your peripheral vision. Does this make Oro uncomfortable based upon previous descriptions he will take the box go inside and close the door and hope this is just a person i don't know that's gonna leave him alone uh for right now he'll just kind of like lean up against the door once he closes it with the box kind of in his arm and his ear his left ear kind of loosely pressed against the door just to hear if they walk closer so here's what happens you you snap open the door you just grab the package snap the door closed and put your back against it, just your ear against the door, kind of breathing a little heavily. Hold in the box. And you hear outside, Oh, come on, Oro, don't close the door on me, that was rude. Uh, who are you again? Um, we met in that forest, face full of bandages, black tie, you know that guy? Oh, okay. I was hoping I would forget. That seems my memory could forget many of things today, but not that. Um... No offense. None taken. You're gonna leave me out here in the cold or what? Do you even feel things? As he opens the door. (laughs) And you open the door and you see the man. He's standing right there. It looks like he hasn't aged a day. Same old black suit, same old black tie. However, the words that are written on his white shirt have changed to wake up. Still written in that strange, dark, crimson liquid that you can smell is blood. And he says, Well, uh, thanks, I guess. But yes, I do feel every now and then. But that's not why I'm here. Alright, you recognize this moment in time, don't you? I guess. Yes. One of many, many attempts to rid you of the thing that is inside you. Why are you covered in blood? Well, it's not not totally covered, it's just the shirt. I don't know why, but every time I think something strong, the words on my shirt change. Can't really explain it. In blood. Yeah, at some point in the past, the future, who knows. It got that way and it hasn't stopped changing. Whose blood? That's an interesting question. I don't know. So am I supposed to wake up? Is that what this is? Are you my... Smacking me across the face if I lost myself. Well, it's less that and more that I needed to talk to the three of you personally. This is the shard of power that I'm about to give you. This piece of you. It's going to secure your route ahead. It'll help you on this road that you're walking together with your friends. But I needed to talk to you personally for it. You have a piece of me? It depends on, well, what you take that meaning for. In essence, it might be a physical piece of you. Or it might be some part of your history. Who's to say? 
I'm afraid to ask what comes next, but please. He gestures to the package in your arms, and he says, It's right there. Why don't you open it? I look at the bandage guy like a while before I turn to the closest kind of table that I probably the table I shoved all the shit off of a moment ago. And like, you know, you hear like the crunching of glass as the 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 box sits on it. And then with my claws, my werewolf claws, you know, like a, a box opener to shink, 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 open it up and then, you know, bend back the brims of the box. I assume it's cardboard. What's inside? Inside the cardboard box nestled in a sea of white styrofoam packing peanuts is what appears to be a tiny velvet-lined box, the sort of box that you would get a wedding ring in, along with a letter enclosed within an envelope. He goes for the envelope first. I go for the envelope first. Is my name on it? On the face of the envelope, on it you see written two words in a rather flowing, elegant, yet very legible handwriting. You recognize, and it says... To Oro. Oh, I recognize the handwriting. Yes. It's from your mother. His heart sinks. He'll open the letter slowly and then pull out the parchment or whatever from what's inside. And he'll look at, I'll look at the bandaged guy, like almost with that accusatory look of like, you know what's here already, but don't say it. And then start to read. The letter is definitely from your mother. The first thing that catches your eye is the little wax seal at the bottom of the piece of paper. It is expensive letter-grade paper. Along with the wax seal, you can see her signature and her name. Vera Eldridge. And the letter reads, Dear Oro, my son, I never meant for this to happen. You should know that when I married your father, it wasn't to sire my children. I didn't need a new pack, and I didn't need an heir. And when I had you, it was the greatest moment that I had ever lived. I just wanted you to be normal. I never wanted any of this to happen. And yet, it did. I know that you don't trust me. And I know that you hate me for what I am and for who you are destined to be. I write this letter to tell you that it doesn't have to be this way. I know what you've been doing. Your scent is, well, all too familiar to ignore sometimes. And so, in this package I have enclosed, Something to help you with your research. I hope that it finds you in good health. And I hope that one day, you'll forgive me. I'm sorry. And the letter ends there. He probably reads it one more time. And as I finish the last sentence, he I bring my hands up to my eyes and probably wipe tears he wants to think are there. And there might be a little moisture, but it's hard to remember that love after so many years of hating but it's still there under the surface he you know remembers you know go back to memories of being five six and i'm out in our backyard and we're playing with the dogs and i i just see my mother smile and closes his eyes as he folds up the letter and i uh, goes back to the box his hands just hovering over the the box within the box and He's almost scared, so I look at the bandage man, almost for comfort, even though he's not comforted at all by this person. <laughs> um, what does the bandage man do when I look at him? The man has his hands in his pockets. He's just looking at you rather expectantly. And when you look at him, he shrugs and then gestures with his head down to the little box as if to non-verbally say, open it. 
in a very dramatic fashion, I dig my hands into the box underneath all the peanuts and like cup the little box with peanuts. And like as I pull it out, peanuts fall through my fingers a little bit, but there's still a couple there. Like I almost want them to help protect me from something. I know I'm not, it's it's, it's not going to hurt me. It's from my mom, but I, I, it's just he having that barrier like helps helps me see this as the objective thing it needs to be rather than this personal gesture i guess that my mom wants it to be and then crumpling the little peanuts kind of i take one hand and i don't know how does the box open it flips open like a typical box you'd find a ring in but where that little indent in the fabric is where you would normally seat a ring is a small glass vial with a dark red liquid in it. And my senses smell what this is. It's blood, most definitely blood, but not just any blood. As you lift the box to your nose and you sniff it, your mind instantly goes back to when you were a kid at home, watching your mom prepare lunch or dinner and having a conversation with your dad and absentmindedly accidentally slicing her finger open with a knife. That exact same coppery, earthy smell of her blood is coming from this vial. I'm salivating a little bit. Like, my maw, there's just, he, the bandage man would see, like, a couple little drops from the jowls that kind of hang around my kind of, where a, go, where a goatee would be kind of on a man. And I take the little vial out, put it in my right hand between, you know, my forefinger, my middle finger, and my thumb, kind of holding it there. and. Thank you, Mother. Thank you. Why did she do this? Because, at the end of it all, despite everything, she's still your mother. And she loves you. Doesn't matter what she is, doesn't matter what you are. At the end of the day, you're still her son. And she cares about you, like any mother would. We're to show it. She wants to help you. And she knows, or at least, you know that she knows you need this. So why do you care? I care because for the longest time I've been watching, waiting, not just for you, but for everyone involved in this, to start on this journey of self-discovery, healing, confronting the things that hurt them, and at the end of the day, to set the world right. It's all going to shit tomorrow, don't you see? You remember, don't you, being attacked in the Amazon, you were just trying to find some ruins, and these soldiers tried to kill you, you and your friends. My employers don't want to see that company rise to power and destroy the world. There is an imbalance, and if left unchecked, this world and everything, everything that lives on it, will die. And I know that you don't want to see that happen. I see it in your eyes, you know, that little twinkle. That says you want adventure. You want to continue seeing what the world has to offer. Because sure as hell you haven't seen it all yet. It's history. Secrets. The forgotten pathways. Covered in moss and dead leaves. The ruins. Draped with vines. Lost to time. You want to see it, don't you? And you know that the curse that you carry in your blood. You need to come to terms. With what that means to you, is it a blessing or is it a curse? You've already been provided with a way to get rid of it for good. 
And he gestures to the little vial that you hold ever so gingerly in your hand. You signed for it, after all. Maybe it'll help you on your quest. Maybe it won't. But someone close to you wanted you to have it. You don't have to use it, or you might need to. It's up to you, but as long as you keep it close, it'll help you understand your role in things to come. I use it now. What do I lose? What does the future lose? He shrugs and shakes his head and says, I can't tell you that. I can only talk with you about these things and provide the things that my employers want to give you. But I'm forbidden in messing with dreams and in influencing the future. Physically, I can only talk and watch, such as my lot in life, my role in this existence. I've come to terms with it. This blessing or this curse that I carry, I've seen so many things. The past, the present, the future, it all sort of blends together in a haze of memories and thought, events blurring together in a mishmash of history and future, combined together in a great big soup or fog. It gets rough, and sometimes I find myself questioning why I chose this. Could I have done something in my past that would have prevented me from being here, but I accepted it in the end. My lot in life. It's not a blessing. It's not a curse. Might be both. You never know. But I chose this path. And I chose to help the people that'll make this world a better place. Like you. You talk as if you're so far away from this world. A long, long time ago, I wasn't. And frankly, a large part of me wishes that I weren't this distant. So are you saying that I can help you influence this? Not me, specifically. This is the fate of the world we're talking about. You, your friends, and everyone else that is taking a stand against the people that were trying to kill you. Your actions in these coming months will shape the world, like it or not. And it's up to you and those people to make this world a better place, or at least a world that is worth living in. He puts the vial back in the box, closes the box, but then brings it over to where his main synthesizing equipment that he didn't destroy and kind of sets it over there. You set the cardboard box down on the workbench and as you turn around, the man in bandages is standing in the doorframe of the entrance to your lab. Still hands in his pockets. He's kind of leaning one shoulder on an edge of the doorframe, just watching you. I love this world. I love the parts that I've played in it. The people I've met, the things I've seen. I'm just scared of what I will do to it if I let this rage take over. But I also feel at the same time, if I don't let the rage guide me, will I have the strength to do what you ask? There's only one way to find out. You fall into a deep, deep sleep. James, you don't know how far you fall, but as you descend into this trance-like state, you dream. And the next thing you feel is pain. Several muscle aches, bruises, sharp pains like lacerations and cuts, burns. 
you feel hot, like exceptionally hot for this time of year. It's weird. And when you open your eyes, you can see that the sky is dark, cloudy, lit only by reflections of fire. And there appears to be thick plumes of smoke that are rising to the sky. As your eyes slowly crack open, you can feel someone shaking you. And then that feeling disappears and you hear faintly a set of footsteps moving away from you. And then you hear someone, a man in the distance, say, Susanna? Susanna, Susanna, wake up. Come on, wake up. We gotta go. I, my first thought is, no. It's like, I know who that is. I know that voice. I know those words. And just, no. No, this can't be happening right now. I'm refusing to believe, even though I know because I've been here and heard those words and said those words. As you stir, you can feel that familiar weight in your right hand. And as you turn your head to look, you see that you have your mahuidal with you. But it doesn't feel as familiar, this weight. I mean, it makes sense. You've used this weapon for a while, and you know how it feels like, you know what it weighs, you know how it moves, and you've trained with it, but it just doesn't have that same familiarity right now. But it's there. And as you stir, the man that you heard, you don't see him yet, but you hear another rushed set of footsteps that get closer to you, and then you feel a pair of hands on your shoulders, and this man startles you awake. He is shaking your shoulders, and a moment later you see <clears throat> sorry, and a moment later you see his face appear directly above you, upside down, of course. Why don't you describe to me what Jackie looks like? Jackie is almost six and a half feet tall. He's got shoulder-length brown hair that he keeps tied back. He's got a, they're very faint, but it's a number of very, very small burn scars across his face and down his left arm. He's, his face is kind, is the way most people would describe it. And I'm starting to come to, and I see him looking down at me, shaking me awake. I can feel my hand, my hand still on the Maquito, and it's like waking from a dream into another dream, but this pain is way too real. And I start to try to gather my senses and make some effort to get up. And I'm hearing the gunshots and a scream, and I... You ever feel like you've been somewhere and experienced something before? Deja vu? This is deja vu to the nth degree. And I start to try to pick myself up off the ground. What? What? I say to Jackie, James, James, holy shit, you're all right. We, we, need, we need to get her to safety, James. She's not going to last. 
and you sort of follow his quick glance over to your left, and you can see the prone form of Susanna Turtledove lying on the floor next to you. She's barely conscious. Some of her clothing is singed by fire. And the biggest, most frightening thing you can see is that her arm is missing. Her left arm is just gone. The wound cauterized from the elbow down. Her dirty brown hair is splayed out around her head like a halo. And she's facing away from you, but you can tell that she's not in good shape. But she is conscious or semi-conscious. You can see her stir and try to lift herself to her feet and not realize that she's missing a hand and an arm. Jackie is patting your shoulders. He's trying to get you to stand up. and It's, it's starting to come back to me. This, this wasn't supposed to happen like this. This mission, we weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to have this many people. They weren't supposed to have this many weapons. They weren't supposed to be able to do all this stuff. And yet they did. Unknowingly, Orpheus had sent you into hellfire and brimstone. Hot lead and eldritch magic. As Jackie helps you to your feet, it's unsteady. You feel strength slowly returning to you as you first get on a knee and then he helps hoist you up onto your feet with an arm draped over his shoulder and he says come on james we need to get out of here we need, we need, we need to get suzanne out of here we need to get to cover we need to phone we need to phone orpheus this shit's fucked dude this shit's fucked best i can under my own power i get out from him holding on to my shoulder and helping me along and try to move on my own. My gait is unsteady at first, but I'm trying to find my footing. I have to get, I have to get to, to, to fuck Susanna. She, and I'm starting to stumble faster and faster towards her, but my, my movement's a little surer every second. And I get to her and Jackie's right there with me, and I look, and she, I, I can't tell if she's conscious or not, but her arm's gone. She's not bleeding from where it's just gone. It, it looks like it's been burnt, which, thank, being thankful for small favors, but we need to go. We need backup. We need something, but whatever it is, we need to be out of here right now. And I sat to bend over to try to help lift Susanna up off the ground. And no, her eyelids are open, but she's not. She's not there. She's completely unconscious. You bend down and cradle Susanna in your arms. You lift her up off the ground. She's unconscious for sure. But from this close, you can tell that at the very least, she's breathing, which means she's still alive. Jackie, by now, has stopped supporting you, and he is somewhere behind you. When you turn around, you can see him gesturing towards you, beckoning you to come towards him, and he's yelling over the sounds of gunfire and fireballs that are soaring over your heads. And he yells at you, Come on, James, we need to go. This way. 
I start towards where he's gesturing, where he is. I look up where he's pointing. Is it anything in particular, or is it just a way out of where we are now? You're not sure. It's The place is wreathed in smoke. There's a lot of dust in the air. But it appears that he is pointing towards a small shop front. You know this town. You know this place. And you know that this entire town became your enemy in the span of a night. As you make your way towards where Jackie is gesturing, you feel your heart sink as you see it coming. You know it's coming. And you know what happens next. Your first few steps towards Jackie are tentative, but steady, growing ever stronger. And then you see a lance of purple fire shoot through the sky and smack Jackie square in the chest. He lets out a small grunt and flies several feet backwards in a plume of smoke, tumbling to the ground in a heap, a scorching ring on his chest, and he stops moving. Sat not towards the storefront. I turn, I turn about 30 degrees to my left, and I'm moving as fast as I can while still carrying Susanna, and I'm moving towards where Jackie's body is stopped. And if we're going to get out of here, we're all going to get out of here. And if I have to carry the both of them, I'll carry the both of them to safety. And if I die trying, I die trying. Every step, every breath just burns. Whether it's from the injuries I've already taken or just the smoke-filled air. And I'm moving forward. And I'm going to get to him. And I know I'm going to get to him. And I don't know how, but I've done this before. And I get to him. And I can't tell if he's alive or not. And I strain. And I push myself beyond my limits to pick him up as well. And the both of them together are so heavy. And I have to do this. And I have to get to cover. And I have to see if he's alive. And I have to contact our handler. And we need reinforcements. And we need evacuation. And... I know I get there, and yet I still have no idea if five seconds from now one of the cultists will come up and shoot me, if I'll be set alight, if something worse will happen. I know I make it. I know I get to that storefront and call Orpheus, but every second I don't know if I'm going to falter, I'm going to lose my footing, if I'm going to take a bullet from someone that I didn't notice, and I keep going. And you keep going. Your sword is now clipped to your belt. As you stumble towards Jackie's prone form, you shift Susanna so that she's draped over your shoulder like a sack of potatoes. And then you hoist Jackie over your other shoulder. Their weight combined is almost at the edge of unbearable. But you power through it. You stumble towards the shop front and you dive through the open door. In here, the store is oddly quiet, save for the muffled sounds of gunfire and searing hot flames traveling outside. For a moment, there is peace. Through the smoke and through the ash, 
your enemies have no idea where you've gone. They only know that you exist somewhere down this hill, and their intent is to make sure that you and your friends never leave here alive. But for now, you have a moment of peace. And as you set Jackie down, he stirs in your arm and he coughs, looks down at his chest and looks up at you and he says, Well, I certainly didn't see that one coming. <laughs> I don't think any of us did. And I'm going to set him down as gently as possibly as possible and look, uh it looked like fire he was hit with some sort of bolt of fire. He's not still like on fire. He's not he's he's not still burning. Not that I really have any way to deal with that if he was uh, is is has he broken anything? Any does he seem to have any major fractured limbs? And it's just looking and seeing exactly how badly hurt is he. Jackie's got some burns all over his chest from where he was struck by that fireball. And as you tear open his shirt to take stock of all his wounds, you can see that he's also been shot. It's low and not vital, but there is still a slow trickle of blood oozing from the rifle round that punched through him. You know that he's in a lot of pain and he is holding a crumpled handkerchief to the bullet wound. And he's looking at you and he says, <laughs> It uh, doesn't look so serious, right? I can still fight. Yeah, it's not serious. You'll, you'll be okay, Jackie. And I'm going to place my hand on top of his where the handkerchief is and I'm going to press down on his hand and I am going to ignore the fact that this is going to hurt him more as I do it. He winces and hisses as you push down on the wound to apply pressure. And then you feel someone tugging on the sleeve of your shirt. You look over and you see Susanna. She's regained consciousness briefly. And you remember this. You remember her doing this. You remember all of this taking place. And she looks up at you, and you hear her, almost inaudible, amidst the chaos outside, say, Finish the mission, James. All that's left is the leader. You need to stop him before this whole place becomes a portal to hell. That was the moment that she lost consciousness again. And I made sure that she and Jackie were out of line of sight from the door at least and I took my communicator my burner and I contacted our handler and I said about how badly this operation had gone and that we'd taken casualties and would need evacuation and that the main person of interest, the leader of this group, was still alive. And that I was going to engage the hostile again. And I slowly, I stay low. And I look for any other way out of the building. And I don't, in the moment I remember thinking, I'm currently thinking, it doesn't matter with all the smoke, does it? And there is a side door, and I still go out it, because it's further away from where 
Susanna and Jackie are. And I come up the side of the building. There's another building within a stone's throw. And then there's a post office. And I try to stay out of sight from the road, back up. And I get back uphill. And there's only one of them with any real amount of power ability only one threat that isn't just some hired thug or paid militiaman or rank amateur acolyte that can maybe move stuff without touching it and i know he would have stayed back fallen back as things went poorly as casualties were taken on both sides and we gave way better than we got and i know he's in this farmhouse still i'm able to make my way onto the property and onto the back porch and i'm in and i can hear him on the second floor and i haven't been seen yet and as quickly as i possibly can i make my way up those stairs and there he is and he almost killed us, but he didn't. He didn't succeed, and that's that's what's going to end him right now. I'm going to end him right now, and I know how this is going to happen. I've seen it and lived it before, and I know how he's going to attack me, and I know what I'm going to do to try and stay alive right now, and I can see the point where he fucks up the mistake he makes and it, that gives me the opportunity to bring my maquito down taking his left arm practically off at the shoulder and the obsidian blades along the edge of it just slicing down through the left side of his chest and hearing a crunch of bone as it hits his rib cage and shatters several of them and as this man screams turns around tries to grab something in the room with his mind to fling at you you step forward and drive your boot square into his chest and kick him right out the window the glass shatters explodes outwards in a spray of shards and splinters of broken wood as the man sans arm tumbles in a spray of blood out onto the street in front of you and you're standing there framed in this window wreathed in smoke and ash your arm covered in blood from where it gushed from the stump of that man's arm where you chopped it off and even now you can see it still twitching on the bed oozing a pool of blood over the sheets and you step out of the window. You hop the short distance and you land on your feet. The man is choking on his own blood, gurgling, but he's still conscious, trying to crawl his way away from you. I am not a cruel person. And even after all this, I decide that ending his pain would be some kind of mercy. And I come up to where he's attempting to crawl 
on one hand and knees away and I rear, rear back and bring that obsidian edge down against the side of his neck. You sever his head from his shoulders, relieving the broken man of his pain. As his head rolls along the asphalt, slowly dripping blood, you hear out of all of the noise and the clamor, a set of footsteps. Sounds like heels on pavement. As you look to your right, through the fire and the smoke, you see a man emerge, silhouetted against the light and the fire. You recognize this man. It's the man you saw earlier. The man from your dream? From the waking world? He's got that same bandages on his face, the same black suit, black tie. He's got his hands in his pockets. And as he gets closer to you, you can see that the writing on his dress shirt has changed. It now reads, wake up. And he strides towards you, even as a fireball rockets over his shoulder and soars over your head. And... As he approaches you, time seems to slow down to a stop. And you can see a bullet slowly come to a stop just past you as he stands in front of you and says, Well, this is a different kind of hell that you put yourself into, huh? The hell I've lived through before, and I'm living through again right now. It's not hell, but a memory. A memory, sure. But also... Here, out in the sticks, fighting against cultists with no idea what is powerful, with their guns and their fire. Your identity was forged in this, James Castillo. In blood and battle, you found purpose. But more than that, after this, you knew what you needed to do. You found a higher calling. As the blade in your hand awoke, for the first time in millennia since you found it. And it told you what it needed. It needed blood, sacrifice, power. It gave you everything and more. And in return, you fed it. And after flat rock became nothing more than piles of ash, dead bodies, blood and bone left to rot, the sun, your blade wanted more, but you remember this, you know, you didn't seek bloodshed, you didn't seek battle, you sought adventure instead, dedicated yourself to your craft, you remember, don't you? And the remembrance of the last hour of my life? remembrance of being in northern Brazil, a ruins that should not exist and was not in the historical record. My current cellmates. You remember Robbie and Oro Eldridge next to you. And you remember the three of you meeting for the first time in Rio on that fated mission. And you recall and it ended similarly, retreating from a hail of gunfire, explosions, and swaths of bright orange fire that racked the rainforest that you were in. You remember going down that tunnel, heading down into the earth, retreating 
from people just like these that were out to kill you? I remember even while fleeing from an overwhelming force from a number of enemy combatants that would overpower us that we didn't have any hope of winning against even while attempting to find some way out heading down into that temple robbie was collecting as many pieces of plants and fungi that they could and oro and i were rushing about with with our cameras trying to document as many inscriptions and artifacts that were in there in case we got out but the site was lost and he speaks to me of wanting looking for a love of adventure and the passion for my craft and i think about how even in those dire circumstances that shone through even as i had to kill those soldiers for their very life's blood to perform some magical rite that i didn't fully understand to try to find a way out that I didn't even know if it would work or not. So that at least those of us who had survived to that point could escape. And I remember falling through a hole in the world. That our escape was indescribable. And I remember not knowing not knowing anything where we are. Are we dead alive? Is this any place or no place? And, and I think that's the point where I wake up and snap too. And where I'm still falling. We're still falling through the universe. And nothing makes sense. As you return to that street full of fire, frozen in time in your memory, the man is right in front of you, and he puts a hand on your shoulder, and he says, You know, all of this, this was a good thing. It set you on your path to where you are now. You wouldn't be here if you hadn't made the choices you made in your life. You know, I've been watching you. I've been watching you and your friends for a long time, making sure that you're in the right place at the right time. And you're walking the road that you're meant to walk. For the fate of the world hangs in the balance. You're destined for great things, James Castillo. But it saddens me that I can't directly help you. I can't walk this road with you. You have to do it yourself. And all I can do is observe, offer insight, and, where possible, give you gifts. Powers that be that employ me, they wish to see this through. The world is turning inside out, James. And all the people that employ me know it's you and your friends that will save the day in the end. They have faith in you. You, Oro, Robbie, everyone else. 
that is here, and they want to make sure that the world continues to turn. He, with his other hand, he reaches into his jacket and pulls a small postcard from it, and he hands it to you. On the front, it is a scenic picture of a small valley town nestled within what once was a river basin. And at the bottom in loud flowery text, it says, Welcome to Flat Rock, Nevada. And he says, Take this. It might help you remember the people that you're fighting for. And if not, it can be a reminder reminder that you're not just fighting for yourself. Through all the bloodshed, the tears, and the pain, you fight for the greater good. Despite what that thing in your hand tells you, don't trust your sword, but use its strength instead. That blade was meant for deeper, darker things. But through your words and through your actions, it'll become a force for good instead. Don't forget that. And never forget the people that you're fighting for. And when you turn over the postcard, you can see that it's signed by yourself. You see your own signature there, along with the signature that you know belongs to Susanna Turtledove. And the person that it is addressed to is Jackie Seymour. And you can see in your own handwriting the words, get well soon, written in the little space provided on the postcard. And then you wake up. This has been Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. A warm thanks to our players tonight. Pinky for playing Robbie. Ross for playing James. Seth for playing Oro. Be sure to follow the show at Applied Mats on Twitter, and we will return in the next episode. Good night. Thanks for sticking around to watch me work. I'm sending you off to a different place now, far away from here, and a few days in the past, to a beachside city, to a mundane family to catch up and to witness providence in action. Next time on Day in the Life, part one.